But what I would want everyone to take away from this is that you have the geopolitics, the geoeconomics, and the geotechnology as a triangle, three corners of this triangle, and that a successful society, a great power, is going to be one that is fluent in all three of those languages, that focuses on building capacity in all three of those areas, and looking for the linkages and synergies between their technological innovation, their economic power, and their military and power and state capacity. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier weekly podcast that dissects the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the 21st century does not belong to China, United States, or Silicon Valley, but it belongs to the internet. With me today, we have Parag Khanna, celebrated author with his recent book, Move. I have him here to discuss a very popular article called Great Protocol Politics, which was published in Foreign Policy that he had co-written with Balaji Sirisavan, former CTO of Coinbase and former general partner of Anderson Horowitz. Parak, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be back. And I'm glad to hear that you refer to this as the premier podcast uh, on a great range of things, because I certainly agree with that. Mm, and congratulations on the book move. I'm sure after the award that it got for Financial Times. So since that last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, quite a bit. I've been throwing myself into a startup SaaS company that I started called Climate Alpha. And what it does is predict asset values of property and real estate across diverse climate scenarios between now and the year 2040. So as you can imagine, as you know all too well, startups can be all-consuming. And so I've been really 24-7 on that. And on top of that, just traveling very intensely because really we're finally entering the post-pandemic world and I'm traveling kind of as if it were the pre-pandemic world again. Well, having you here and we also recently have dinner together with our spouses, I cannot help but ask you this question. As an observer of global trends in geopolitics and mobility, what are your thoughts on the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine? Sure. I mean, my thoughts are also colored, not just by being an observer, but a participant. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Russia and Ukraine over the last 20 years, more Russia than Ukraine. But I've been traveling to Ukraine for about the last 16, 17 years, actually. So I've been looking at it, written extensively about it. One of the longest chapters of my first book was about Ukraine. And in fact, the title of that chapter was Ukraine from border to bridge. And I put on Twitter a while back saying, I wonder if I should have put a question mark there. It was a time of kind of optimism when I first wrote that because the orange revolution of the 2004 had taken place. And even though the politics of Kiev was very much a spin cycle between uh, Western leaning and Russian leaning figures, there was a sense that there was also an increasingly cohesive or an effort to create a cohesive national uh, ethos. But overall, you have to look back and say that Ukraine has you know, failed to build that really strong national identity, not least, of course, because Russia has been seeking to undermine it successfully, as it were. As someone who looks at political geography very carefully, which obviously includes the overlays of ethno-ethnic politics, border disputes, and so forth, one thing that I've long been suspicious of is the notion of a frozen conflict. It's a term that you often hear when people are describing situations like dormant tensions between countries that have not been blown up or not escalated militarily. 
And I've always said that there is no such thing as a frozen conflict. They are always percolating. They are always gestating, metastasizing. And there is always the potential that they're going to explode unless you settle them. And this is a perfect example of that because from the Russian invasion uh, and seizure of Crimea in 2014, through the unrest and the building of uh, nationalist groups and militias in Donbass and eastern Ukraine, right up to this present invasion, you have this perpetual agitation and destabilization and effort to effectively dismember and stoke secessionism in Russian populated parts of Ukraine. So there's no question that this is not a frozen conflict. It's not been frozen for the last 20 years. It's been actually quite hostile for those who are paying attention. And to some degree, I'm not surprised that it exploded in this way. One looks at Vladimir Putin's behavior Clearly, when it comes to Georgia, Syria, and elsewhere, and one could well imagine that he was you know, quite fixated on this intervention, and now he's done it. I have actually given a probability of 80 to 90% prior to the invasion, uh, because you don't amass so much troops around it. But the aftermath of it, I was surprised. I'm also wondering, did anything surprise you after the invasion, and then in the first days where uh, Zelensky was actually within Ukraine and showing to everybody, to the media, that he's there and they're going to be fighting and then it unites the West. Well, I think that Zelensky has surprised, let's say, on the upside. He's not the only example of a leader that has been thrust into this kind of situation and has sort of risen to the occasion. There is a fight or flight instinct. He chose, of course, to fight, not to flee, like, say, Ashraf Ghani in Afghanistan. So one has to give him credit for that. But again, as a political scientist who wants to see serious governance, I wouldn't necessarily have elected a comedian and an actor as head of the country at whatever point in time, whether it was good times or bad. So I do feel that he's still the wrong person at the right time who stood up because I want to see objectively qualified and competent rulers. I think he is a very brave person, and I respect everything that he's doing right now, and I think he deserves all of the admiration he's received. I, the last thing I want to be is cynical right now about him and his intentions, not at all. However, the fact is that it's still a structurally weak state, and when, you, when you're speaking about probabilities, let's talk about best and worst case scenarios. I mean, the best case scenario at this point for Ukraine is that Russia does wind up keeping uh, Donbass, the northeastern coastal stretch along the Black Sea, the Crimean Peninsula. And the worst case scenario is that it continues westward and manages to destroy, occupy, whatever the case may be, all the way west of Odessa to the Moldovan border. And if it does so, it would close off uh, Ukraine's Black Sea access. And there's many other, obviously, potential downsides in the worst case scenario, including, of course, the further destruction and dismemberment of the country. Politically speaking, what I imagine the trade-off and settlement will eventually be is a concession over those new borders. And that is, of course, what we now know publicly is being discussed. But in exchange for that, or in a way, what will happen in terms of the West standing up is that it will probably admit the remainder, the remaining, the rump, new Ukraine state, if you will, not only to the European Union, but potentially to NATO as well, in order to make clear that there is indeed a new Iron Curtain. So I think that your thinking is that the end game that Russia will basically capture some part of the territory, but not the whole of Ukraine. 
And basically that will still become the buffer zone between the West with NATO and Russia. Yeah, and there shouldn't really be a whole lot of dispute about this, because remember that Putin is not trying to reconstitute the former Soviet Union, What he's because he doesn't actually favor a multinational plurilateral state, right? He speaks about the Russian near abroad. His priority is, is ethnic Russian populations, wherever they may be. That may justify his incursions into states that are not majority Russian populated, like Ukraine, maybe even Estonia or whatever the case may be at some point. But it doesn't justify for him the operational pain, obviously, and the backlash involved in intervening in countries that are not predominantly Russian. Let's remember that he just sent so-called peacekeepers into Kazakhstan two months ago, three months ago, to respond to agitation and unrest in that country. But his so-called peacekeepers were gone within 72 to 96 hours, and that was part of the deal. So he also knows which places he shouldn't necessarily wear out as welcome. Of course, the question is, is he going to learn that the hard way in Ukraine? Mm. I think this is something that we will continue to watch. My sympathies to the people who are suffering in this conflict as well. And I'm sure we are all, they are all in our prayers. Today, we are going to talk about something really interesting because I do recall that it's probably one of the highest read article in foreign policy. So it's the article, Great Protocol Politics, which you co-authored with Balaji Sarasavan. So first question, what is the inspiration behind the collaboration of this article? Because it combines both technology and geopolitics all in one. It does. And that was obviously very much the intent. I mean, I think Balaji and I are somewhat like separated at birth. We've been kind of completing each other's thoughts and sentences for a long time. And the technology and the geopolitics are very complementary kind of knowledge sets. At various times, we've had unfinished Google Docs that we started together but didn't complete. But this one really kind of fell in our lap because two, two scholars who are friends of mine, Ian Bremer and Stephen Walt, had a debate in Foreign Policy Magazine about big tech and the sort of world order. And I kind of tweeted out a kind of missive saying, there's a few things missing in this debate, clearly. They didn't really capture many important subjects. And so he copied that tweet and sent it to me and said, you know what, this is it. Let's write this one. Let's finish this debate on our terms. And, and, and the title definitely is to his credit because the term great power politics is very commonly used in international relations, but great protocol politics was his uh, clever coinage. So uh, that's really how it started, was again, yet another Google Doc and a clever title. Pretty long article, I have to say, but the central thesis of the article, if I interpreted it correctly, is that there is the third way to the global order, which is brought about by technology. We often see technology as an enabler rather than being a force by itself uh, to enter into geopolitics. So what has changed in how we perceive the current geopolitical order? Well, you're right that technology is often perceived as a third way. And we do restate that in terms of kind of partially accepting the, the terms of the, of the pre-existing debate. But now that we have time to actually speak at a bit more length about it, at a very fundamental level, it's not correct because technology is always part of shaping the existing geopolitical balance of power, whether you are talking about the Mongols using the stirrup or the crossbow deployed on medieval battlefields to nuclear weapons and cyber war, there is not a period of history in which technology is not intimate 
and fundamental to determining uh, the balance of power. I had actually coined the term geotechnology about 15 years ago because I felt that there was something missing when people spoke about geopolitics versus geoeconomics. In the mid-1990s, that's when that became a kind of precursor to this debate. Oh, well, in a world of stability among great powers or unipolar hegemony of the United States, surely it's geoeconomics more than geopolitics. And that debate became rather stale. And what was missing all along was the fact that geotechnology is the third corner of this triangle and that the balance of innovation shapes the balance of power. And that has, again, always been true. So there's never been a time at which we should not be talking about technology as having a fundamental role in the balance of power. And what, what our argument in this essay sort of reminds is that, or what's novel, is that technology can shape territorial power more than most people think. They think of static territorial units competing in terms of who has the upper hand in a particular technology, again, whether it is nuclear or whether it is cyber, but not about a parallel, if you will, intersecting digital domain and power within that domain being to some degree separated from or independent of those territorial powers and even shaping the battlefield that those territorial powers operate in and potentially even hosting independent authorities and powers in their own right. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it's very important to appreciate that even if technology has always been crucial, territoriality is now not the only, if you will, battlefield or landscape. And that, that clearly is quite different from prior eras. Reminds me of the book called The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman on the history of World War I. I think the way generals were thinking about the battles is always thinking about the last battle, whereas the circumstances and the technology has changed and hence it became more deadly in the sense of during World War One, where chemical warfare was first unleashed. And a similar thing that have happened also in World War Two as well. So maybe the question I would probably think about when I read this article is what are the mental models that we need to rewire in order to see how geopolitics actually transition into one of what we call technopolitics mentioned in the article. Right. So whether you want to call it, you know, geotechnology or technopolitics, in particular, in this essay, we dive into blockchain and crypto protocols. And there's a great line that, that uh, Balaji uh, in, inserted in here. I can't remember to whom one of the original kind of inspirations is attributed, but he said the the difference in great protocol politics is that it's not just about, quote unquote, how many divisions does the Pope have, which was Stalin's quip against the authority of the Pope. It's not about the number of divisions an army has, but the capacity for long division by a hacker. So that, in a way, somewhat captures the gist of it, which is, again, when you're speaking about this digital domain, and in particular, blockchain and crypto, you're speaking about the capacity of agents, whether it is state-based or individual or corporate or other associations, uh, to affiliate with each other in ways that are not dictated purely by the state, and they can conduct those activities and transactions to the extent that they are not hacked and undermined and manipulated by state actors. And I think the currency technologies or what we call blockchain technologies has this capability of being decentralized and not having anyone to own it. So the code is actually shaping 
the type of politics as such. I mean, if I take one of your examples and you mentioned in the article about network proximities being on par with physical geography, thinking about wiring the world with the internet, but we are also having balkanized internet systems. Like for example, the Great Firewall of China and even Russia shutting down internet access. I mean, there is also counterbalance as well that now the satellite internet that like Starlink that's provided by SpaceX or OneWeb that's coming around in the sidelines. Can this digital network proximity actually triumph over physical geography? Mm-hmm. Well, so it's not so much about triumphing. I mean, a long time ago, I sort of created this dichotomy between the geopolitics of the internet, meaning the physical architecture, the infrastructure, the cables, the data centers. So that's the physical geography of the internet. And there is a geopolitics of that. Then there's the geopolitics in or within the internet, which is, of course, cyber warfare and so forth. Now, this is an important distinction because when you when one describes the internet as being cut off, it almost gives the impression that it is that physical internet itself that is being dismembered. But it's not because there is a redundancy and a layering and an autonomy almost to that internet. It is, of course, the case that some countries may cut themselves off and cut their people off and limit their access to that internet. But it doesn't mean that that internet is diminished or that it ceases to exist. So it is more self-harm and self-isolation than it is an assault on the actual robustness, if you will, of the internet. So even the terms we use kind of give the wrong impression. That The fact that people are trapped behind the Great Firewall or that Russia closes off internet access to its citizens in times like this, and other countries do the same, whether it's Syria or Egypt or whatever the case may be, or that democratic and non-democratic societies file petitions to have content removed on Facebook or Twitter and so forth, does not itself harm, again, the physical attributes of the continuous expansion of the internet itself. So I think it's important that we think about it in that way. And that, again, within the internet, there is the, again, as I was describing earlier, the capacity for association, whether it is anonymous or hacker groups or cryptocurrency platforms and uh, financial institutions and digital currencies, those all continue to form and they can use the internet, secure, unsecure, blockchain, or otherwise, to continue to build those associations that transcend the state. So I think we we should not be thinking, again, of the internet as something that at this point is the lowest common denominator among state actions, right? It very much transcends them because no one state has the power to shut it all down. Well, if you think about it from the history of technology, Yes, the internet has been in physical servers, but as we have satellite internet, you become more and more formless. I mean, even as you alluded to earlier, when you think about the dark web or the internet that we can observe, it already goes into very different layers and it's actually very hard for anyone to actually try to dismember the internet from that point of view. Is that how I understand it correctly? That, that's exactly right. That's a, a perfectly legitimate way of saying it. And it, it happens to be factually true. Again, it is more likely that you will remove yourself, if you will, and sort of diminish your own exposure and capability to access the internet than that you will necessarily impede or harm others' capacity to do so. So one interesting thing that came out from the article was that 
the central bank fiat currencies are currently competing with the cryptocurrencies uh, leveraging on decentralized finance or what we now call DeFi that actually circumvent ge geographical boundaries of the financial markets. I think even with the introduction of the central bank digital currencies where China will be launching it soon and plus now Biden's executive order that will initiate a study of the CBDC as well. But my prediction is that eventually the US is just going to co-op one of the current stable coins, which I suspect is USDC, to be part of the system. What do you think are the potential scenarios that will lead to a potential outcome to this digital monetary competition? I actually think national stable coins are a smart move for governments. And in fact, we should remember that they are a response to the demand for innovation. It's a perfect example of what we're talking about. It should be seen first and foremost, not as states co-opting a technology, it's states catching up to a technology. This is a critical thing. So this is not uh, the final salvo, the final chapter in this tug of war. Uh, it's a constant innovation competition. Now, creating more unilateral, bilateral, or multilateral liquidity through stable coins is itself important because it might actually accelerate financial inclusion. Because we know that when it comes to the existing financial system, billions of people have more or less been excluded from the formal economy. And the combination of mobile banking, cryptocurrency, and stable coins can actually generate in the official domain the kind of liquidity that is on the whole, on balance, going to promote financial inclusion. So we shouldn't first and foremost view this as something that is somehow going to co-opt and suppress digital innovation. In many ways, I think we should all have a common objective that every citizen of the world should have uh, financial access to the digital domain. And when they have that digital wallet, yeah, as we argue, it's going to be a multi-currency wallet because if you can have one stable coin, nothing's stopping you from also having cryptocurrencies and other entities on your ledger. So I, I think that it's too short term for people to view USDC and the new Biden kind of initiative as taking the wins out of crypto. It can be a useful peg for, for a range of uh, cryptocurrencies, but people see crypto as for a wide range of reasons. It could be facilitating transactions, deploying them within certain platforms, hedging inflation, arbitraging regulation, and so forth. And all of those should still be, can still be considered legitimate motivations for bypassing government stable coins. And remember that cryptocurrencies also enable that financial inclusion, which is a long-term objective. So the kind of tit for tat view, yes, it exists. Yes, there is that tension, but there's also a broader kind of gain that is also being contributed to here. Interesting that you say that because I always do this two by two game theory matrix on China adopting Bitcoin, China not adopting Bitcoin, US adopting Bitcoin and US not adopting Bitcoin. And currently we are in the zero one world where China is not and US is. So what is the outcome of what I thought about in the game theory world is that the rest of the world will basically go to the Bitcoin as a way of exchanging with both currencies. But I, I don't know, when you think about this so-called digital monetary competition, it seems that there is a choice now for the rest of the world to decide what is that common currency as compared to maybe decades ago during the Cold War where the first world is living on the US dollar, which is the agreement from Bretton Woods and Russia, the former Soviet Union being running with their own 
economic system. So is there something shifted in this new digital monetary competition? So there's no question that we're heading into a multi-currency world in the same way that we are irrevocably moving into a multipolar world, as it were. Not exactly at the same pace, but one also contributes to the other. There have been periods, I mean, over the last 20 years, we have seen the U.S., the share of global currency reserves held in U.S. dollars decline and then and then surge again during the flight to safety after the global financial crisis and now start to decline a little bit more again. Energy transactions, for example, oil contracts priced in U.S. dollars are among the key reasons why countries have to hold a very large uh, share of U.S. dollars. But the shift towards renewables could alter that pricing countries such as China or India having uh, energy contracts priced in the RMB or rupee, or petro RMB, petro rupee, could also diminish the need to hold U.S. dollars. In general, China's policies around dual circulation as attached to Belt and Road participating countries is another reason. The Eurozone coming together with its new long-term common budget, common fiscal policy, euro bond issuance, is also leading to a slight uptick in holdings of euro currency. And then you have efforts that multilateral institutions might make, such as elevating the role of SDRs, which is, of course, critical in times of crisis as a liquidity mechanism. But that, again, that let's remember that during COVID, the role of the US dollar became absolutely fundamental because first the US Treasury and then together with the IMF made trillions of dollars of uh, lending available. So it's a good example of um, Again, sort of existing cooperation within the current monetary system. And then crypto, finally, as well. So we will have a different basket, if you will, a different currency basket in the years ahead. And it doesn't have to be a hegemonic transition because it's not going to be transition from a U.S. dollar to an RMB world, because unless you have a freely convertible currency, it's not going to be the global reserve currency. And there's many other reasons why the RMB won't be. So I do think that what is exciting about the period that lies ahead is that it will be quite different from a, you know, Pax Britannica Sterling era or Pax Americana dollar era. It's going to be something a bit more, you know, diffuse and probably a bit more appropriate to the range of actors in the system, which are not just great powers. It's not just a US or China situation. And one of the things that, at least you know, in my geopolitical work, I've always emphasized is the, the other, quote unquote, right? The other, in quotes, happens to be most of the planet, right? You know, the other 6 billion people and the three quarters of the world's population and three quarters of the world's countries that are post-colonial societies and post-colonial societies and thinking like those societies and not wanting to be subject to either dollar hegemony or RMB hegemony or any kind of hegemony, not choosing sides is very fundamental to our argument. And it's one of the reasons that, as you all know, Balaji pushes strongly or advocates strongly that India and other countries embrace crypto, avoid what you know he calls woke capital or communist capital and choose crypto capital. So what you're saying in your question, what he's advocating for and what we write about in this piece are very much part of the thrust because of the psychological awakening and the technological possibility that now coincide to not have to choose one hegemonic model simply because there is a existing great power competition between the U.S. and China. And, and I just want to add from a almost ethical normative standpoint, to me, that's a wonderful thing. And I want to be absolutely clear that I celebrate that. I celebrate the opportunities that exist for countries to uh, structure their monetary systems, their diplomatic relationships in ways that are in their 
best interest rather than having to choose in a monopolistic or duopolistic system. Of course, for the first time, we actually now have real digital ownership with non-fungible tokens or what now people call NFTs. Are we naturally moving towards bits reshaping atoms? It's a great question. And when we were writing about this, one of our key platforms or points about the emerging techno-political order, it was meant to be a very tangible observation of the fungibility of digital innovation. So to restate the examples that we use, 3D printing, mRNA vaccines, and so forth, are collaborative cloud-based innovations that societies have to embrace in order to remain competitive as physical geographies. So again, keeping up with innovation, keeping up with cloud-based, keeping up with digital innovation, innovation in bits, is crucial to being a successful physical state, one that is wealthy, one that is growing, one that is prosperous, one that is attractive uh, to talent. So again, we tried to flip the argument on its head that territoriality itself isn't necessarily the only foundation of power. Size does not alone equal power. Look at Russia's size, for example. It's the largest country in the world, but it's not the most powerful state in the world. One has to couple that territoriality with a certain degree of digital innovation. So absolutely, bits reshaping atoms, the digital innovation reshaping what constitutes uh, productive and innovative activity in the physical world is, again, not separate from geopolitics. It is very much a part and parcel of geopolitics. And that comes to the other point. A lot of common perspective is that a lot of people do not understand Web3, that we're shifting from valuing companies to valuing economies. And a unicorn is not a billion-dollar company, but it's actually a trillion-dollar economy. That's what should be defining the quote-unquote unicorn for Web3 world. But it also means that the international rule of law is also shifting to a rule of code. How do we think about property rights from that point of view? Absolutely. It's a, I think you make a great point. And as you know very well, this is something that happens quite a bit in Asia and in other countries. Rule of law is often rule by law, which is to say it's the abuse of power. And what we posit in contrast is the rule of code. And that is about smart contracts and privacy protection in the digital domain. And even lodging on the blockchain, sort of the transparent registration of physical uh, assets in ways that can help to guard against expropriation, certainly the expropriation of digital and financial assets. So most fundamentally, that transparency that I was talking about is crucial because this also helps to counter some of the cynicism about cryptocurrencies, which are considered, you know, opaque, because really, as in many countries, what is genuinely opaque is the even-handed application of the rule of law itself. But here, what we're saying in terms of the rule of code is that you have a validation, you have a transparent validation on the blockchain and public registration, the ownership of assets, digital assets, and even territorial assets such as uh, property rights. So in this sense, I think also when you want to think about regulatory competition and the race to the top, the race to the top is not just about the lowest tax rate or something like that. It's about the transparency and the predictability of the rule of law and using technology to assert that and document it. With technology, are we going to decentralize 
power away from the US and China? As what you have already alluded to, we're going towards a multipolar world. Sure. I mean, this goes almost back to the first uh, point, but we have been trending towards a multipolar world, believe it or not, since the 1970s. And the seminal moment in that is not the rise of China. It's actually the consolidation of the European Union and the European economy. So in geopolitical literature, when you measure power transitions, you look fundamentally at economic foundations, military capability, and other kinds of assets, including demographic size and so forth. So geopolitical scholars were looking at multipolarity in the 1970s with Europe, not necessarily a hegemonic contender because it was, of course, still under the American protective umbrella. But the reality of a world in which Europe and Japan and then China became powerful actors, already alluded very strongly and signaled the multipolar world. And note that, therefore, I'm not taking for granted that bipolarity is the foregone conclusion about what the future world order is, because I have rejected from the very first moment that people started talking about a new Cold War and a kind of global G2. I've always found that to be uh, misleading. And it draws upon only the kind of brief period, really, of the late 20th century where you could speak about a rigid bipolar system, though it obviously didn't itself, let's remember, apply to the entire world because you had a large non-aligned movement and so forth. So today, even more so than then, you have numerous great powers, regional powers and global powers, and you have a very large swath of countries that have no interest in taking sides. So how can you possibly posit that world order can be reduced to merely the US and China and everyone must choose sides? Because again, I've built basically my entire career <laughs> arguing that so many countries, dozens and dozens of countries, the places where I've spent the last 25 years are actually not playing that game and won't play that game and won't be seduced or tricked or compelled to play that game. And we live in a region, ASEAN, which by and large is doing a very good job, I might add, of not succumbing to that and instead practicing uh, what I call multi-alignment and playing all sides. So I think multipolarity is irrevocable. It applies and constrains America as much as it does China or rather it constrains China as much as it does America. And what America, in fact, is doing rather cleverly right now is helping countries or trying to help countries that have found themselves ensnared in Chinese debt traps or other kinds of uncomfortable situations to perhaps bail themselves out of those arrangements. And that's a reminder that there are plenty of options. There's optionality, if you will, in the system. So yeah, we're very much in a multipolar world. It's going to be that way for a long time. Despite the digital revolution and the exponential growth of technology, we are still limited by geopolitics with country holding both military and economic power. And the people who have that power are not likely to let technology protocols or companies to rise. I mean, let me just take the black mirror analogy of this. It reminds me of a science fiction book called Damon and Freedom written by Daniel Suarez, where a dead CEO of a company unleashed chaos from a decentralized world with weapons attacking people with power and then bring about a new world order. I think this is probably the, the other extreme end, right? Can techno politics that you mentioned in this article coexist with great power politics? 
Oh, absolutely. Again, you know, so technopolitics or what I what I've called geotechnology is part of that triangle alongside geopolitics and geoeconomics. So it is very central. It doesn't just coexist, it's a driving force within it. And all sides play in that technopolitics, even if we tend to focus on the military and economic balance of power. So I think, again, one of the strengths, one of the positive trends within this broader debate is that at least we're all talking about how central technology is, even if we dispute who wields, if you will, the strongest weapons and whether they are state or non-state actors and in what coalitions uh, they act. But what I would want everyone to take away from this is that you have the geopolitics, the geoeconomics, and the geotechnology as a triangle, three corners of this triangle, and that a successful society, a great power, is going to be one that is fluent in all three of those languages, that focuses on building capacity in all three of those areas, and looking for the linkages and synergies between their technological innovation, their economic power, and their military and power and state capacity. And that's what successful countries do. So I think that you know we shouldn't be viewing these conversations or these lenses of technology, politics, economics as rivals to each other when they are very much the the three, among others, foundations of power in the first place. So coming back to the question, right, what would the world look like if it is completely dominated by technopolitics? It might well be that we're heading in that direction in the sense that technology is suffused into everything. The share of economies that's represented by technological activity, right, whether it's hardware or software, is rising. Again, battlefield, quote unquote, victory is determined in so many ways by technology. And then there is the cyber domain technology itself in which you have persistent competition between states and the rise of non-state actors and associations claiming their own autonomy. So I think we live, we are saturated in a techno-political world. So when you ask what will the world look like, it's not necessarily a future scenario. It is our emergent reality right now. And obviously, you and I are old enough to reflect and think back that the, the World Wide Web came sort of online the same year that the Berlin Wall fell, 1989, 33 years ago. And it's incredible how the mental models of the early 1990s differ or have evolved from where we are right now. And I think very few of us could have imagined, again, 1989, very few people paid attention to the launch of the World Wide Web. Everyone saw the Berlin Wall fall. Today, of course, I think we all take for granted that it is indeed a techno-political world. You know what is interesting? Waging a war in the 21st century is still very expensive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the bits, both the bits and the atoms are quite expensive. <laughs> so, Parat, many thanks for coming on the show. And this article is really great. And I would highly recommend all of you out there to really check out this article called Great Protocol Politics is very easy, searchable on Google. But in closing, I definitely have to ask Parab because he has very interesting recommendations all the time. So what interesting recommendations have inspired you recently? Well, I keep turning back to uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. I mean, it's an incredibly prescient 
book. That's really the only way to describe it. And he both on the page and in person is one of the most articulate people that you can encounter and really almost be captivated, mesmerized by. So I recommend everyone go and read that book if they haven't. And he also just very recently gave a Long Now lecture hosted by the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. Those lectures are always really a treat. I had the honor of doing one just a few months ago, in fact, about the MOVE book. But watch Stan Robinson's lecture and read his book. And I think that what's so important about it is, again, his seamless blending of the emerging environmental realities and scenario of a heavily climate-stressed world uh, with what our actually future monetary systems might look like and, of course, a future digital landscape as well. And his research is impeccable and his vision is very realistic. And how can my audience find you? Paragkanna.com. If you can spell Paragkanna, you can find me. Okay. And also climatealpha.com, right? <laughs> and, climate alpha. and don't forget Balaji. It's just at Balaji. Balajist, yes. Balajist. B-A-L-A-J-I-S. Yeah. And Balajist definitely have a lot of great tweets. So you should follow him as well. So um, definitely the podcast is available everywhere, but you can tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia, or you can find me at Bernard Leung. And of course, uh, the podcast is free. Please give us a five-star ratings. So Parag, once again, uh, great to have you on the show and definitely I think we live in interesting times and we're going to continue to talk about this. We, we certainly will. Thank you for this uh, five-star conversation. Run it, run it.